Did you know that there are biblical and unbiblical ways to deal with sin? Well, there are, and we'll talk about them both out of Romans chapter 7, coming up today here on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. So how do you deal with sin? There are biblical and unbiblical ways to do so, Christian ways and unchristian ways. So as we begin our time together today, we take a look at the Christian view. First up, a description of who a Christian is. We're in Romans chapter 7. This is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Join us today as we continue our look at Romans chapter 7, the unbiblical way and biblical way of dealing with sin and how a Christian should do so. It's all today on Graceful Truth. Here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast. Join us. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. We don't need a whole lot of explanation there. You should not murder. Jesus explained the command by showing that it concerns more than just taking another person's life, as Jesus always did. Matter of fact, in Matthew 5, verse 22, he says, I tell you that anyone who is, listen to this, angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. See, the commandment searches the depth of who we are. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're often very angry at, at folks or situations, and sometimes we need to be corrected. Is there such a thing as righteous anger? Yes, there is. But I would say probably most of our anger is unrighteous anger. Our anger is instead generally aroused by some real or imagined slight offense against ourselves, and we get angry at it. Do we commit murder? I hope not. But you know what? By definition, we can murder by neglect. We can murder by, with spite. We can murder with gossip, slander. There's a lot of different ways you can murder. Thomas Watson, himself a preacher, said this, ministers are murderers if they starve, poison, or infect souls. Seventh commandment, Exodus twenty fourteen. He says there, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus commented on this commandment in Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And he was saying this to people that outwardly didn't. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we need to be understanding that our marriages are to be honoring to the Lord. The eighth commandment there in Exodus twenty fifteen: you shall not steal. I mean, this is kind of a universal commandment across the human race. <clears throat> it's found in almost every culture. Uh, but it's only biblical religion that explains why it is wrong to steal. In addition to the obvious fact that theft is socially disruptive and inconvenient, the real reason it is wrong to steal is that what the other person possesses has been given to him or her by God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. So if you take anything from one to whom it is given, it's a sin not only against them, but it's a sin against God because God gave it to them. We need to think about that. You do that, we do that in many ways. We steal directly from God when we ne neglect to give him the worship, honor, thanksgiving, and obedience that he deserves. There's also a positive side to this command. 
over in Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. According to Paul, what he's saying is the eighth commandment remained unfulfilled until the offender began to help others who were in need. The ninth commandment, verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. It's a warning against perjury. But it's also more than that. It condemns all slander, idle talk, gossip, unkind rumors, jokes at another person's expense, lies, deliberate exaggerations or distortions of the truth. It concerns even listening to such unkind things uncritically. And then the 10th commandment, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Covetousness is really the root of sin when you stop and think about it. Watson says this, when it is exercised fully, it causes a breach of each of the other commandments. That's why Paul related to it here in the book of Romans. And so you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, okay, this is God's law that we're looking at. Uh, what, what do we do here? The question was, is the law sin? And he answers it in verse 7. He says, certainly not. But then down in verse 13, he says, ask the same question. Did that which is good then become death to me? And he says, by no means, but in order, verse 13, that sin might be recognized as sin. It produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment, sin might be utterly sinful. And so we see here in the text, verse 11 to 13, he says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. God's law reveals the holiness of his commandments. And it also reveals the utter sinfulness of our sin. The first point there in your outline is God's law reveals the holiness of his commandment. Look at what he says in verse 12. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. He, he could mean here the law as a whole. He could be referring to the commandment of covetousness there that he mentions. Either way, he's talking about God's commands. And he says there that every single part of it is holy, righteous, and good. And so he emphasizes his point by really piling up these terms. And so he's, first of all, he says, God's law is holy. Now, we all know what holiness is, right? Holiness is to be separate, to be called out. It's the opposite of sin. God's holiness means that he is altogether separate from us. He's not just one of the boys. He's not the man upstairs. He's separate. He's totally holy. And Ephesians 5, 27, Christ's aim for his church says that she would, the church would be, we would be holy and without blame or blameless. And so God's holy commandments show us how to live in a separate way from this evil world. See, the problem with the church today is that they figured out that they can come to church on Sunday and then flirt with the world the rest of the week. And then just come back to church on Sunday. That doesn't work. That's not being holy. That's not being the light of the world. That's not being the salt of the earth. 
And so he says God's law is holy. Secondly, he says God's law is righteous, which means that it's right. Okay, it's just. God himself is the standard of what is right. No one else sets the standard but God and God alone. And so when God says something, it is always right. There's, there's no, God can never be wrong. So when God, for your life, has a plan and a purpose, and you're fighting against it, and you're saying, I don't want to do this, God, what are you doing? You're fighting against what is right. You're fighting against what God wants for you. And we shouldn't do that, because we don't know better than God. He's our creator. If we violate God's moral commands, we are wrong because God is always right. His standards are not relative. His law is not relative. His law doesn't change with the culture or with the time. You can't bend God. You can't say, well, you know, this seems kind of old-fashioned. Lord, I think, you know, maybe we need to kind of change some things. No. God is the same. Jesus Christ is the same, what, yesterday, today, forever. He doesn't bend the culture. It doesn't matter whether the, the, the culture thinks he's relevant or not. Who cares? That's, that's irrelevant. God's commandments are always good because they come from a God who cannot be anything but good. See, when you believe that about God and you believe that God is just and you begin to understand that, and then when something crazy happens in your life, what are you doing when you shake your fist at God and say, why did you allow this to happen? No, there's a purpose. There's a reason why God has allowed that to happen. And it's good that he allowed it to happen, even though what happened may have been bad. It may have been hurtful. We have to put it in perspective. God is the final standard of what is good. God's law, secondly, reveals the utter sinfulness of sin. It reveals the utter sinfulness of sin. God's law is holy. God's law is righteous. God's laws are good. But He gives us his law to reveal the utter sinfulness of sin. That's what he says there in verse 13. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. C.H. Spurgeon said this, The law was not the cure of the disease, much less the creator of it. But it was the revealer of the disease that lurked in the constitution of man. He goes on to show that when Paul wanted to come up with a word on how to describe how bad sin is, he didn't call it exceedingly black or horrible or deadly. Rather, he wanted to find the very worst word to describe it that he knew. He called sin by its own name. <laughs> he said, is it, it, it's exceedingly sinful. There's nothing as evil as sin. God gave his law for our good to show our sin to us so that we could realize that we need a answer for this sin. And that's when Christ comes in and dies on the cross and we can put our faith and our hope in Christ and he can save us from our own sin. God gave us his law for our good, not to keep it, but to show us our own sinful. Sin is utterly sinful because it is rebellion against our loving and heavenly father. That's what we do when we sin. Think of Genesis, when God gave Adam and Eve the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, that command was what? For their good. That command wasn't given just to say, I'm going to mess with them a little bit. No, he wanted to keep them from the consequences of what? Death. You know, when parents tell their children, you know, it might be best you don't go out and play there on the freeway with the, the little rubber bouncing ball. It might not be a good thing. 
It might not turn out well for you if you do that. You know, you could say, you could argue, well, man, what a cruel parent. They're just depriving their children of, of having fun in the freeway with the, the red ball, with all the trucks and the cars and the buses. No. Why are they saying that? They're saying that to protect them from death. So when we sin, we rebel against the God who is loving and kind toward us. He's never mean. He's never harsh. He's never cruel. Rather, sin, as Spurgeon put it in another sermon, is the monster that this verse drags into the light. See, we have to see sin for what it is. It's not an addiction. It's not a behavioral problem. It's sin. It's rebellion against a holy God. B there, sin is utterly sinful because it takes a good thing and uses it to kill us. Sin takes the good law of God and it turns it into an instrument of death. You know, I guess if you were going to use an example, it would be like, Someone taking a scalpel, very sharp knife that's used by surgeons in the operating room to take out things that shouldn't belong in your body, and they do it very effectively. They're very sharp instruments. But if you took that scalpel and you just decided to cut your neighbor up, okay, that's a bad thing. You're taking a good thing, but you're using it for an evil purpose, a bad purpose. It's a useful tool in the hands of a skilled physician. See, the sinner who used the scalpel to murder someone is the, is the culprit. You don't blame the scalpel. You don't say, oh, that bad scalpel. How could he do that? No. Sin takes God's holy commandments and he uses, and, and he uses them to kill us. Paul mentions their death killed in verses 9, 10, 11, 13. He means that the law brings us under God's righteous, eternal condemnation because we've deliberately violated his law over and over and over again. So we should fight against our own sin in in much effort, just like we would struggle against somebody who broke into our house and wanted to steal everything or murder us. We would fight against them. We wouldn't just lay down and go, okay, go ahead, stab me. No. Third thing, sin is utterly sinful because it involves deliberate violation of God's good and perfect will for us. Do you know that God has a good and perfect will for you as his children? And by the way, God doesn't play hide and go seek. It's not like God said, oh, you know what? I got this good and perfect will for you, my children, dear Christian. But you know what? I'm going to have to make you look for it. I'm going to have to make you beg for it. I'm going to hide it in places you'll never begin to look. I mean, that'd be a sick God if he did that. He doesn't do that. So people come all the time and they say, well, how do I know if I'm doing God's will? First of all, you get your nose in the book and you find out what God's will is. You know, you, you don't even need to pray about this, okay? You go to the Bible and you start to learn what the will of the Lord is. What the Bible has told you to do. Well, what has he told us to do? He told us to pray. Told us to read the word, meditate upon it. Told us to fellowship with the saints. Tells us to serve one another and others. You go on and on and you can find certain things that says this is God's will for you. And you do those things. Probably less than 10, actually. If you do all those things and you're doing those things, and then you come to me and you say, well, I don't know what to do. Do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want if you're doing these things that God has already told you to do. Because if you're doing those things, you're not going to violate those things. So you're not going to want to do something that would violate what you're already doing. That would be ridiculous. So if you want to know what God's will is, get your nose in the Bible and see it right on the written page. Where there is no law, there is no violation of the law. You can't break a law that doesn't exist. 
See, our conscience, when we do something wrong, our conscience nags us. Our conscience says, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. Why? Because we know that it goes against God's word somewhere. Fourth thing here, sin is utterly sinful because it uses deception to kill us. And we'll close with this. Sin is so deceptive. Sin doesn't come into your life and go, you know what? I'm just going to make your life a wreck and misery and you're just going to you know, hate it. No, it doesn't do that. It's deceptive. You've all probably seen the movie or read the book, Peace Child, where Don Richardson is a missionary and he talks about this group, the Sawi tribe, that he brought the gospel to. And they had this practice that they would basically deceive the people that came to them whether it's another tribe or whether it's a visitor, whoever. And they were expert at it. They, they excelled in deception. They actually looked at deception as a virtue. The better you deceive somebody, the higher you are in their, their eyes. And so they would lure an outsider into their midst as a friend. And they didn't know any better. They didn't expect any of this. And they would treat him as a king. They'd feed him well. They'd honor him. Little did they know that, did he know that they were literally fattening him up for the slaughter. And sometimes this process would go on for a couple years. And they would live amongst the tribe thinking, boy, it's incredible. These people are such a blessing to me. And then would come a day when they would all gather around that individual. And they would literally kill him and eat him. Crazy. But this person never knew it was coming. As a matter of fact, when Richardson was explaining the gospel to them and he was telling the story about Jesus and he told them about Judas who betrayed Jesus, man, they put this guy on a pedestal. They wanted to worship Judas, not Jesus. That's where their minds were. See, in that same way, that's how sin is utterly sinful because it deceives us. Paul uses the same verb to describe the serpent's deception of Eve in the garden. First, he distorted and misrepresented God's commandment by drawing attention only to the negative part of it and ignoring the positive. Second, he made her believe, Eve to believe, that God would not punish disobedience with death. And then he finally, thirdly, said the very commandment itself is to insinuate doubts about God's goodwill and to suggest the possibility that she and Adam could assert themselves in opposition to God. One pastor came up with 15 ways that sin deceives us. And I'm just going to read through them and then we'll close in prayer. Sin deceives us into thinking that outward obedience alone pleases God. Whereas we need to please him on the heart level. See, that was the downfall of the Pharisees, wasn't it? They thought, hey, if I'm doing all this stuff out here, who, who cares about my heart? And Jesus turned it right around on him. He said, no, you got it all backwards. Secondly, sometimes sin changes its tactics and tells us that everything is hopeless so that we might as well keep on sinning. You just got to get discouraged. You say, man, I failed together. I failed again with this sin. I guess there's no hope. I'll just continue to do it. Sin deceives us to presume on God's grace. Hey, I know Christ died for my sins. I know all my sins are forgiven. So if I have a little sin in my life, it doesn't really matter. It's all forgiven. Fourthly, sin deceives us into thinking that it will bring true and lasting happiness while holiness will bring us misery. I mean, if you just think of the word holiness... It doesn't sound as fun as sin. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, it just doesn't. 
So sin deceives us that way. Fifthly, sin deceives us into thinking that we have a right to happiness while we forget that we have a responsibility to holiness. We don't have a right to happiness. Where do you see that? Where do you see Jesus saying, yeah, you know what? After you're done dying to yourself and taking up that cross as an instrument of death, follow me and just be happy. Where do you see that in the Bible? I I see just the opposite. I see him telling his followers, you know what? They mistreated me. Wait till they get their hands on you. (laughs) Okay, you better be ready for it. You're going to have to suffer. We don't want to hear that. Sin deceives us by, sixthly, by getting us to discount the consequences of willful disobedience. Satan lied to Eve. Surely you won't die. God won't really allow that to happen. So you sin a little bit. Seventhly, sin deceives us into thinking that we've earned some free pass to sin because of all that we've done to serve God. Have you ever thought that? I'll be honest. I've thought that at times. You know what? I'm serving. I'm sorry. Okay, you know, I I blew it in this area. I'm sure God understands. Let's move on. Well, no. It's not that easy. Eighthly, sin deceives us by getting us to swap the labels and call it something much more acceptable. Think about it. In our own culture, it's not called adultery. It's called an affair or a fling. It's not perversion. It's gay. It's not stealing. It's just taking what the company owes you anyway. They're just not giving it to you. I'm not angry. I just got a short fuse. It's not gossip. I I just want to share this prayer request with you. I mean, you know, we all go there at times. Let's just be honest. The ninth thing here, sin deceives us by making us think that we're normal when we sin. And to think that holy people are weird. I mean, that's what it does. You know, how many times has has someone come to you and, and maybe confessed something to you? And what's our first reaction? Hey, brother, I understand, man. It's, it's normal. <laughs> I've been there myself. You know, we're, I mean, maybe with good motives, we're trying to encourage him, but what are we doing? We're, we're making an excuse here. We're making it look normal. See, as a believer, if sin is normal in their life, there's something wrong, right? You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. All things, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God gives you new desires, new wants. You shouldn't be the same person you were when you were unsaved. If that's the case, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you need to go back to the Savior and say, hey, you know what? Be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me. Tenth thing, sin deceives us by working by degrees so that eventually that which would have shocked us is now accepted as normal. Boy, the culture really did did one over on us with this. I mean, how many times can you go to the movies and you're sitting there even watching the previews of the movies to come? And you hear things and you see things that if I were to put up here on this screen right now, you'd probably run out of the building. I can't believe he showed that in church. But you'll go down there and pay 12, 15 bucks to watch it on a screen. Go figure. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. We have to be careful. But it happens in degrees. Sin deceives us by making us angry, 11th, at the law feeling that God is against us when he prohibits something. Twelve, sin deceives us by making us think very highly of ourselves. You know, you can figure out what's best for you. Thirteen, sin tells us that the law is oppressive, keeping us from developing the gifts and talents that we have within us. God's law is just keeping us down. Fourteen, sin makes righteousness looks drab and unattractive. 
And then the last thing, sin deceives us by getting us to compare ourselves with other sinners rather than to compare ourselves with God's holy standard. You know, well, I'm not as bad as the guy across the street. I'm not as bad as the, the guy at the grocery store or, or brother or sister or whoever you're comparing yourself with. That's not who we need to be comparing ourselves with. We compare ourselves with God, who is perfect. And what does that do? The practical result, the last point of understanding the holiness of God's command is that the utter sinfulness of sin causes us and should cause us to hate our own sin even more. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.